zero day trading, the risk resets every single day. You don't get that buildup of leverage over, you know, period of days, weeks, months, um, or, or over over a course of a year. So when you talk about like Wilmageddon and, and leverage, um, it's it's a very different, you know, environment and, and scenario now versus what we saw in, in 2017, 2018. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of IBKR Podcasts. I'm your host today, Steve Sosnick, Chief Strategist here at Interactive Brokers, and I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, a return guest, Mandy Zhu, Head of Derivatives Market Intelligence at the SIBO. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me back on. It's my pleasure. I, I, I enjoyed our conversation so much last time that uh, I'm glad we were able to do this again. Um, yeah, likewise here. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's just jump right into it. Uh, you know, when we look at markets, um, the bond market is saying one thing, particularly in terms of volatility. The stock market is saying something else. Um, we, when we look at something like the move index, um, that's definitely getting more elevated in recent sessions. By the way, just so everybody knows, we're taping this on uh, when, uh, Thursday afternoon, December 7th, in case you're listening to this later on. Uh, but since the start of December, we've seen the move index really leap higher while VIX just remains in the doldrums. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Mandy. You know, that's a great question. I think, you know, especially coming off of a month like November, where, you know, everything kind of rallied together, we had this historic rally in bonds and equities and in credit across asset classes, the divergence we're actually seeing in the volatility markets of these various asset classes, I think is very interesting, right? So like, as you pointed out, on one hand, we have equity, and I would also put credit um, in the same camp where volatility has just completely collapsed, right? VIX went from, you know, the mid-20s in October to a low of 12. Um, you know, same with credit volatility. If we look at our, you know, credit VIX indices and um, investment grade VIX IG, um, as well as high yield VIX high uh, HY in index, both fell by over 50% in November. So, those two asset classes clearly kind of in the more bullish camp in terms of you know, in terms of you know what, what, what they're pricing for risk. And then other other hand, you have you know the bond market move index. It did decline in November, but very modestly. And as you pointed out, in recent days, it's going higher. So what's going on? Um, to me, the divergence is really around kind of the shift in the consensus expectation for Fed policy, but the, also the persistent uncertainty around that expectation. So what do I mean? So over the past month, you know, markets have clearly gotten more comfortable with where rates are and where the Fed's about to go, you know, the expectations of potentially Fed cuts as soon as March of next year. So the modal expectation for Fed policy has certainly gotten more constructive for risk assets such as equities and credit. I think that's, you know, part of why those asset classes rallied and volatility have declined. But, you know, the uncertainty band, right, around that expectation is as wide as it has ever been. Um, yes, you know, we can definitely see a situation where we're headed for a soft landing, the Fed starts to cut rates if inflation remains low, but there's, you know, also a scenario where inflation, you know, core inflation starts picking up higher, or, you know, if, if growth actually falls even more, right, the Fed could cut even more severely. So that uncertainty band around Fed policy 
and the path of policy rates um, is extremely wide. And that is what is driving interest rate volatility, you know, higher and, and why it has remained extremely elevated throughout this rally. So to me, that divergence is significant in that sense it tells you there's still a lot of uncertainty regarding Fed policy. But the other divergence that I want to highlight, maybe that's a little bit fly under the radar, is also what we're seeing in the, in the commodities market with oil, right? And you know, one asset class notably that didn't participate in the rally in November is oil prices actually fell and oil volatility remained very sticky um, during that period and did not participate in the decline that we saw in, in equity and, and, and credit volatility. Um, and, you know, yes, part of the decline in oil prices, you can potentially attribute to, you know, dissipating geopolitical risk, um, you know, supply issues. Um, but I would say, you know, oil prices near one year low signals concerns around the growth picture, the outlook for growth. And you contrast that again with equities and, you know, the rally that we saw in November very much led by cyclical stocks, right? Small caps, you know, outpacing large caps, value outpacing growth, cyclical stocks outpacing um, outpacing defensive. That's very much an equity market that is positioning for pickup in economic growth uh, rather than potential downside concerns. So to me, these divergences, you know, in, in asset class volatility, asset class performance really just kind of highlights, you know, still the very elevated um, uncertainty around the macro outlook. You know, there are times I wish we disagreed more because you know, <laughs> I'm sitting there nodding my head. Obviously, the, the, the listeners can't see that. But my, my thesis uh, has been, and I wrote about this um, over the last few days, is that bond market, the bond market and the short-term fixed income expectations are reflecting probably a hard landing since the last Fed meeting. So I did this from, the, from, from November 2nd, the day after the Fed meeting, the last FOMC meeting. We've pushed up the highest, we've pushed up expectations for rate cuts by two months from June to March. Mm -hmm. We're about 75% in June before, now about 75% in March now. And we've come from three cuts in 2024 to five cuts in 2024. That is not a soft landing. That's right. a pretty hard landing. Stocks seem to be, you know, ignoring this prospect. And as you say, when you see like the Russell taking off, which are the, the most economically sensitive stocks of them all, um, I, 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 it comes down to, you know, are, are stocks just sort of, uh, one of the questions I asked basically, is, you know, have this, has the stock market front run Santa Claus? Um, you know, they're just so content with what's happened before that they're really willing to overlook um, some of the the quote the known unknowns, including you know we're taping this before the the F, the payrolls numbers and the FOMC meeting, um, you know, and I'm looking at something like VIX nine D, which you know I, I obviously you're familiar with, and I'll let you explain it better than me because as the CBO representative, but even the nine day volatility expectations as opposed to the thirty days in, incorporated in in the main VIX product, are not really showing much concern ahead of these events. Yeah, I think you know, to a point, I think short dated volatility, whether you look at one month, one day, nine day, you know, you pick 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 your tenor. Um, those volatilities have clearly fallen. I think they've fallen because, you know, the we're not gonna know this whole soft landing versus recession, hard landing, you know, the, the outcome is not gonna be clear 
anytime soon, right? It's going to be sometime next year where we're going to look back and say, okay, yes, there's one way or the other. Um, and that's why actually the part of the volatility curve that it is reflecting more risk, it's longer data tenors, not shorter data. So, you know, VIX, one day, nine day, one month, you know, yeah. all the short data tenors have fallen. But if you look at one year implied volatility, um, in, in the S&P, right, that spread relative to, say, the VIX, um, it's near the highs. So that tells you people are still, you know, concerned over the longer term outlook. Um, and, and it's just not being reflected in a short dated measure such as the VIX. Um, but one thing I do want to kind of maybe touch on, you talk about the kind of the rally that we've seen in November, I do think part of it um, is positioning related. Yeah, yes, part of it is fundamental, right? Like the the, the, mm -hmm. the better than expected inflation numbers, the Fed speak, the Fed meetings, you know, the, like they've all kind of shifted the, the fundamental picture and the narrative quite a bit, but also positioning is a big part and people, investors, I think, you know, the consensus expectation coming to the fall was so bearish, right? And that's why markets, I think, really had a hard time selling off in September, October. It was, you know, very, the volatility was not on the downside. It was in the rally and in November that we saw the sharp moves to the upside. That tells you the pain points is really markets going higher. And you saw that also in the derivatives market, you know, option volumes picked up in November and uh, I think CPI day, we had the a record uh, single day volume in S&P, 4.4 million contracts. It was dominated by the calls, right? And particularly uh, longer data calls expiring year end, December expiry. That tells you people were really managing their risks and adjusting their portfolios very dynamically and really concerned about hedging that right tail. Institutional investors have underperformed all year. I right? would not position for this rally, kind of sharp rally going to year end. We're scrambling for those upside calls. And you can see it also in, um, for example, like S&P put call ratio falling to a one year low in, in November. Um, and, and also, you know, various measures of skew in S&P and Russell all flattening to kind of to the lows tells you really that the, the scramble is really for that upside exposure because people were not positioned that way. I think it was sort of, I, I think I refer to it as weaponized FOMO. Um, you know, the, the thing is, you know, if you're an individual investor listening in on this, FOMO is really greed, actually, because you're not really, your fear of missing out is really just, you know, the, the greed aspect of it or, or your idea of missing, you know, missing a move and, no, you know, that's regrets. Um, but if you're an institutional investor, FOMO is real and it is fear. Because you mm -hmm. can't afford no no institutional investor wants right. to go into year end by by underperforming his or her benchmark or by or by being in the lowest you know decile quartile whatever um, and so when that when that rally hit no one wanted to be caught off guard especially because the change in sentiment was so abrupt and I think your the statistics you highlight point to that and I think and I love the fact that you pointed out the the year end SPX volume, because I think it's very easy for a lot of people to say, oh, you know what, everybody's playing the, the SPX, you know, zero dated options, and that's all they care about. Um, but that's the fact that the fact that you saw high volumes going into year end told us that's institutionals, that's institutional, that's institutional investors needing needing at least some upside coverage um, and needing it in a hurry. Exactly. Yeah. So I would say, like, obviously, zero day options have seen the, the, the highest amount of growth, um, given that it's a relatively new product. But um, it, oftentimes, when people talk about the growth in zero DTE, the narrative kind of 
the, the con there's a tendency to talk about it as kind of detracting or taking away from other tenors. And that's not at all what we've seen. We've seen kind of the entire pie grow, right, for SPX. So like volumes growing across all tenors is just at the, it's growing faster for zero days. And um, so that, I think that's, that's something worth highlighting. And then to the point of, you know, if you look at what is really driving volume growth outside of zero day options, you know, I really tie it to the macro backdrop. In a, in a time of elevated uncertainty with regard to the inflation and the growth backdrop, investors are turning more to options to kind of help manage both volatility of the portfolio, but also to really quantify kind of the risk reward of taking a directional view, right? Like if, if everything is clear and you know for sure market's going up, you would just buy the underlying, right? Yep. But it's when you're unsure, when there's a lot of risks out there that, you know, that could um, derail your view, that's when you turn to options because you know going in if you buy a call option what you're at risk if you're wrong it's just premium paid so that, i think that part of option trading really appeals to institutional investors as well as retail during periods like this where they need i guess you know a, more clarity um and, and better tools to manage the volatility of their of their portfolio yet at the same time while they while while that is really the use case for options and, and uh, you, you've articulated it wonderfully um it, it, it's reflective of greater uncertainty, yet when you look at other measures as we go back to the volatility indices, they're not reflecting a lot of uncertainty. It's, it's a very um, strange dilemma, conundrum, oxymoron. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure what word is the right one here, but I think that's, that's an interesting part of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say every part of the volatility, cur volatility curve is low, but yeah. certainly the front end of the curve, as we discussed, um, the lack of demand or, the you know, the, the, the lack of pricing for downside risk in the near term certainly stands out um, right now um, in, in terms of what is being priced in. And, excuse me. And without going down too deep down the, the zero DT rabbit hole, because I, I think you and I could have a higher level discussion than that. <laughs> um, it's interesting. One thing I just want to point out to the listeners is, um, you know, I, I focus a lot on the on the popularity of the SPX index option itself, because what I love about that, and I, and I discussed, I was on a panel with your colleague Henry Schwartz, Mandy, where we discussed yeah. the same thing, and. And, uh, you know, they, the, the question came up, why, why is everybody so in love with SPX all of a sudden? And I, like, I love the fact that all types of option traders, investors, have woken up to the benefits of cash-settled options. Um, that you, you, you go home, you don't have to worry about assignment risk, you don't have to worry about pin yeah. risk, you're just, money changes hands. And as long as, long as you're well-capitalized enough and your brokerage firm has done a good enough job ma maintaining your margins, um, that's it. You just settle up at the end of the day and, and you know, count your winnings or your losses as, as need be. Um, yeah. I, I, am I putting words in your mouth or, 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 or you know, because that was... That You're was... preaching to the choir for sure. Okay. I mean, that's uh, definitely a huge benefit to, to, to trading index options. And I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, obviously a popular question that we get is, you know, will we see zero DT options on other underlines? I think, you know, the assignment risk, the settlement risk around, you know, physically settled, um, you know, options, that's going to be something that people, you know, need to figure out in order for it to really broaden out. Um, but specifically with, you know, cash settled zero day option trading, one of the things, you know, I you like to emphasize, especially when people talk about concerns around, you know, zero DT trading, Volmageddon, I think we've gotten past that concern. I think at this point, people understand zero DT options enough to realize that is an overblown headline. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, I do push back on is that unlike what we saw in 2017, going into 2018 Volmageddon, 
um, where in a period of very low volatility, let all these inverse VIX ETNs, ET, ETFs, um, really build up leverage. You know, zero day trading, the risk resets every single day. You don't get that buildup of leverage over, you know, period of days, weeks, months, um, or over over a course of a year. So when you talk about like Volmageddon and, and leverage, um, it's it's a very different, you know, environment and, and scenario now versus what we saw in, in 2017, 2018. Well, I, I do feel bad for the for the for the third panelist on that panel because um, he was one of the guys who threw out the Volmageddon argument and Henry and I kind of basically said back to him what what you just said is you know history rhymes it doesn't repeat and and i don't see my my my, you're not going to like this analogy your colleagues aren't going to like the analogy and and, but i said that in the very beginning was that zero dta options it it was really the the casinos open more tables and 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 i know you don't want you do not have to (laughs) do not comment on that because i don't want to get you in trouble but basically there were no new games invented it was you know they just opened a five a lot more five dollar blackjack tables so to speak instead of inventing some game where no one knew the risks and no one knew, knew the outcomes. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go too, de- too deep down the D- zero DT, you know, place because you and I could talk about other stuff beyond that. So, so I would say for people who are using options to speculate, certainly that analogy, you know, is fitting. But I would say, and this is something that we've been trying to hammer home, is that the activity that we're seeing in zero DTE is actually very diverse and very mm-hmm. balanced. Uh, and that's because there are different use cases of diversity of use cases for zero day options. There are people buying it to speculate. There are people buying these options to hedge, right? Either event risk, overnight risk, intraday risk. Um, but also there are a lot of people who are selling these options, right? For income, for yield. Um, so because it's so balanced, because it's not just speculators, right? Speculators, hedgers, um, momentum chasers, reversion, people playing for reversion, because it's so diverse at the end of the day, when you look at like the net risk uh, across different strikes of these zero day options, it is extremely balanced. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of the headlines are overblown because they assume that the notional volume, the notional risk is what you should be looking at when it's the net. Uh, and they assume that all the activity is one direction, which leaves, you know, market makers obviously exposed on the other side, when in reality, the, 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 the activity is actually very balanced. Agreed. I'm going to change gears entirely. We'll get off okay. this topic and on to one <laughs> and on to one that that, you know, I found to be an eye opener when you and I talked a few months ago and we start, you know, you, you brought up the topic of low volatility readings partially being influenced by um, lack by correlation or lack thereof. And yeah. at the time, and one of the things that I hadn't really appreciated before our discussion I knew the mathematics of it, and for those listening and who didn't hear the first time, simple simple thing being if you have an index and half the stocks go up and half the stocks go down, when you calculate the index, it didn't move, um, oversimplifying greatly. But And if you have high correlation and they're all moving in the same direction one way or the other, that's higher, you know, that, that increases the volatility, oversimplifying. But I really wasn't aware of the various indices that the SIBO had in its suite. Um, COR, COR1M being my favorite right. because it's yep. the same tenor as VIX. But you teased at the time that you had some new stuff in the works. And sure enough, like a week or two later, you guys introduced DSPX. Um, mm-hmm. And so what I would like to do um, is, for you to, is for you to sort of compare and contrast um, the, the various correlation dispersion indices that you have in your product suite. Yeah, sure. Um, so maybe 
before I kind of compare the two, let me just quickly go over what is dispersion and what is correlation, right? Because they are related, but different different exactly. concepts. So dispersion at its core kind of measures how stocks are moving relative to each other. So it's, you can think of it as like, as like a measure of idiosyncratic or fundamental risk in the market. And I would say, particularly if you are a equity long short investor or a stock picker, dispersion is something that you want to track because it measures how much stock picking alpha there is to be had, right? In a high dispersion environment where there's a lot of differentiation between stocks, right? A big spread between best performing versus worst performing stock. That's when it's most attractive to be a stock picker when there's, you know, the big movements and, and between winners and your losers. Whereas in a low dispersion environment where there's not much differentiation, well, you might as well be a passive index investor in that scenario, right? Because there's not there's not much um, alpha to be generated generated from from stock picking. So dispersion is an absolute measure of how come stocks are moving relative to each other. Correlation, on the other hand, is a relative measure um, of, of how stocks are moving, but it's, it's relative in that it doesn't really measure the magnitude. Um, so so that's where, you know, stocks can, you know, stocks could all be moving, could be all be selling off today, but it matters, you know, how much the individual stocks are moving right relative to each other so mm -hmm. you can definitely have situation i think that's where people kind of get a little bit confused is that conceptually you think dispersion and correlation are inverse of each other right high correlation must mean low dispersion vice versa but actually there are oftentimes where you get high correlation high dispersion and high vix so <laughs> <laughs> that's for example as what we saw in in march of 2020 um and the kind of the best way to think about it is that all of these measures are measures of risk in the market and when risk is high whether it's uh, macro market risk whether it's idiosyncratic risk right it's going to impact all of these indices um at the same time so um to me you know like having dispersion and dspx index is complementary to the existing indices we have out there for example vix and core 1m as, as you mentioned um because it really kind of completes the understanding of what is going on in the market how much of the risk is coming from individual stocks versus the at the, the macro the market level how much are stocks moving relative to each other versus uh versus the index yeah because you know one of the one of the reasons I, i've not yet been able to come up with good signals DSPX versus VIX. While I have, while I have been able to come up with some, and and those who you know, those who suffer through reading my stuff every day, I've, I've seen this before. Is I I've found that COR1M has given me some good signals, particularly in September, when when the correlations started to return to to more normal levels, having been very mm -hmm. having been very low. Um, yet VIX was just mired along, and then all of a sudden, you know, boom, they they caught up to each other, and that is what we're seeing now. Um, you know, we'll see if we go two for two on that one. But, um, but uh, you know, I've yet to really come up with, with a good way of sort of, of, I hate to use the word correlating, but coming up with a signal that, that links together DSPX um, and something, you know, a bit, you know, maybe a bit more um, tangible in terms of trading, trading one vis-a-vis -vis the other, you know, using a signal as DSPX is a signal for VIX or some other volatility type of trading. Yeah, so to me, it's like I, I think of it as, as a complementary measure to the VIX because it can tell you really what is driving the VIX, right? And I think it, um, you know, the, the piece that I published around DSPX, the example that I used was in 2018, right? We had two big VIX spikes that year, Feb 18 and then Q4 of 2018, right? In both cases, VIX spiked, you know, over 30, um, similar magnitude of, of moves, but what was driving the VIX was very different, right? In Feb of, of 2018, DSPX actually fell to zero, 
right? So at the time, if you had DSPX on that day when you know VIX blew up uh, and the VIX ETNs, <laughs> um, you know, the, the 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 blew up, you would have told you it was a technical index-led move that had no bearing on underlying fundamentals, right? Single stock option didn't see a similar bid, right? And, and volatility that we saw at the index level, there was very little fundamental risk that was being, um, you know, being uh, increased in the market. Um, whereas in Q4 of 2018, it was, um, you know, dispersion actually, DSPX actually started rising before the VIX. Um, and, it, and it was going, you know, it was rising alongside the VIX. So that was a period where the VIX was going higher because of increasing fundamental uncertainty with the market with, you know, I think at the time it was, you know, Trump trade wars. There was, you know, Powell um, monetary policy uncertainty. You know, I think it was a lot more hawkish than people expected. There was, um, you know, angst around earnings. Q4 earnings that year was, you know, particularly bad or, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty around that. So, that was a very much a fundamentally driven market sell-off, whereas you know, kind of Feb 18 was a technical index-led move, and having DSPX alongside the VIX would have told, would have been able to, you would have been able to kind of discern the two much better. Um, and one of the things I think what's interesting that's been going on recently is that VIX has fallen a lot, and DSPX, relatively speaking, has been more elevated. Now, it fell a lot in, in November, um, partly due to seasonality issues. But I would say overall, if you look at the average kind of over the past you know, couple of months, uh, DSPX has been a lot more elevated than the VIX. And this has kind of been true for the past 18 months. Um, and it's really a reflection of the fact that a lot of the macro risks that we're talking about are having disproportionate impact at the sector um at the sector and in the stock level rather than at the market level, right? So when we talk about higher rates, right, what that has kind of um, resulted in in the equity market over the past, you know, two years has been these huge swings in growth versus value, cyclical versus, um, you know, defensive stocks, old economy versus tech. So we're seeing big swings at the sector and the single stock level, but because of low correlation, like we discussed last time, right, the, like it hasn't really translated into higher levels of index volatility. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's also interesting, for, you know, to unpack. We, we've all sort of heard the seven versus 493 argument, but it is a lot yeah. more. It is it is a lot um, richer than that. And and do you plan without revealing any any proprietary secrets? Do you plan on on expanding the suite of um, dispersion indices over the coming over the coming time? So, or is it just? Let me phrase it differently. Is that something you're looking at doing based on based on what you've you've seen the adoption of this DSPX so far? Yeah, so this is something that we're definitely going to be building upon. So right now, um, all that is out is the DSPX index, which is not tradable. It's meant to be an indicator, very much like the VIX. But our plan is sometime next year to launch actually futures on the index, very much like uh -huh. VIX futures on the underlying VIX index. That will allow investors to actually express a view on future implied dispersion. Um, actually, let me, in case it wasn't clear to anyone listening, so DSPX, like the VIX, is a measure of forward-looking dispersion, implied dispersion, how much stocks are expected to move relative to each other in the, over the next 30 days. So you'll be able to, um, once we launch the futures, be actually be able to trade that level, um, similar to kind of how people trade VIX futures. So that's something we're very excited about. Um, so look, you know, stay tuned for, for that. Because that I think would be a very interesting type of trading where you could trade dis DSPX futures versus VIX futures and, and see how those curves set up. Because you know, as you alluded to earlier, that that longer term volatility, you know, is much higher than shorter term volatility. There's a certain steep, you know, the, I find the VIX curve right now to be very steep. Some of it yeah. is some of it is, pos is strictly positive contango. 
Yeah. Let me unpack that for those who are not futures traders that, you know, that that in the longer that as you look at a curve, it slopes up left to right. Some of that is interest rate effects. Um, You know, at some level, it affects the the relative um, plentifulness versus scarcity of the the underlying commodity. And in this case, one of the things it tells me when you see a very steep VIX curve is the commodity in question is available volatility protection. And Mm -hmm. as of now, it is quite plentiful and easy to come by. When you see the VIX curve invert, think about when that happens. It's 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 usually in times of stress. And that tells you that there is a scarcity. So sorry. But so that that was not for you, Mandy. That was for that was for, you know, all the others. But but I think it's important um, to keep those frames in mind. And I think it'll be fascinating to see how. how a DSPX curve sets up with, you know, what contang- what what is a normal contango for that curve? How will that be? No, absolutely. You've touched upon something that, you know, that that we're um, very excited about. One of the things we're excited about um, DSPX futures launching is that we think it will trade with a little bit of different curve and, and relationship versus the VIX, because as, as we all know, VIX typically is upward sloping, right? The, the yeah. futures curve and, and contango, as you just, you know, explained. Um, but think about DSPX, uh, forward-looking dispersion, a big part of what drives stock dispersion, actually, you know, the, the most reliable catalyst is earnings, right? Mm-hmm. So as we go through earnings season, that, you know, you would expect to see more backwardation in the DSPX futures curve than you do for, for VIX. And what does that mean for carrying a long D- dispersion position, right, uh, versus, you know, a long ball p- uh, VIX position? Um, it should be, you know, when it's in backwardations, obviously, the carry cost is a lot lower. So, you know, there are definitely, I think, going to be a lot of nuances um, between DSPX future trading versus VIX trading. And that's something that we're very excited about for next year. Well, I think we've just set up a time frame for our next discussion if we don't do it sooner, because I, I, yeah. I, I can't wait to have it then. Um, I, you know, I'm just sort of getting the, the thing on my screen that we've blown through the time that we've had allotted to us, which I think is great because it means you and I have just been chatting away. And, I, and I, I, as I've said, you know, I enjoy our conversations immensely. Um, so I think unless you have anything else to add, Mandy, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, and again, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, my guest today has been Mandy Zhu, Head of Derivatives Market Intelligence at SIBO. I am uh, Steve Sosnick, Chief Strategist here at Interactive Brokers. Um, you could find all our podcasts at ibkrpodcast.com and on your favorite uh, podcast uh, source, whether, uh, you know, all the usual suspects. And we hope to see you soon. And Mandy, what a pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks, Steve. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. 
customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Complex or leveraged exchange-traded products are complicated instruments that should only be used by sophisticated investors who fully understand the terms, investment strategy, and risks associated with the products. Learn more about the risks through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page.